TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm me here. And I'm Liz Hoffman, the business and finance editor at Semaphore. Welcome, Liz. It's so good to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So, Liz, you recently moved from the Wall Street Journal to Semaphore, a digital publisher. What's that like? Exactly as you'd imagine. I spent nine years at the Wall Street Journal and I loved it. I learned so much and have so much respect for the place. But look, media is changing fast. One thing we've seen is this declining trust in institutions, but an increasing trust and affinity for individuals. And I think trying to get closer to my readers and my sources and my subjects, rather than treating journalism as received wisdom that comes down from the mountain from these tablets, <laughs> a newspaper that's going to be at the bottom of a birdcage tomorrow. I also was at a point in my career, and you guys will appreciate this, that I just wanted to try something entrepreneurial and sort of see what it felt like to take a risk. And yeah. I'm told reliably that the best businesses are started in tough economic times. <laughs> <laughs> and then even more exciting, Liz, you have a new book out. I do. It's called Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink. Fantastic. So we should make that our first topic. And then of course, it can't really compete with your book, but what else is on your <laughs> mind as a topic? I am obsessed with woke capitalism and the speed with which it's really become one of the defining forces in modern economic life today. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about that. That sounds really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. That sounds fantastic. Two great topics. So Liz, Crash Landing, I loved reading the book. You give us an opportunity to experience the pandemic through the eyes of big-name CEOs. Chris Nacetta at Hilton, James Gorman at Morgan Stanley, the CEO of Ford, Jim Hackett. And we sort of get to see how they learn about the pandemic, their initial responses, what they worry about, how they try to respond. Early on, you make this point, which was really fascinating to me, that each time produces its own type of corporate leader. If you had to describe what kinds of CEOs will we get as a result of the pandemic, what's top of mind? I'm glad you brought this up because I'm fascinated by this. 
you know, in the 20s and 30s, you get the kind of first generation of CEOs skilled in the management science. They somehow lose their way and become these fat, happy, lazy conglomerate empires <laughs> of the 60s and 70s. Along came the corporate raiders of the 80s and busted them up. The 90s, you have this burst of globalization and outsourcing and mergers, and you end up with these larger-than-life CEOs, the Howard Schultzes and Jamie Dimons and Bob Igers, who kind of seem to escape the CEO role entirely. When I talk to CEOs now, the phrase I hear all the time is, I just want to get back to business. I just want to get back to doing my job. Hmm. And I think you'll start to see a pullback from some of the celebrity aspects. There's this sense that it's not particularly healthy to have a company be so deeply intertwined with their CEO. You get this cult of personalities, and certainly we just saw what Disney has gone through. We can't quite pass the baton. We've seen that in a couple of places. I think you'll start to see people really focus on cleaning up the balance sheet, really focus on optimization, which isn't to say that it'll be entirely financial metrics, but I do think there has been a fundamental reset in looking after different constituencies and that being seen and respected internally is important. Mm -hmm. What do we learn about leadership from this very extreme moment? You've talked to a bunch of these CEOs. Did you come away with a sense of the people who you really admired and their attributes that allowed them to conquer this great moment of uncertainty? From a leadership perspective, one takeaway I had was just make a lot of decisions, make them fast. You guys have studied companies and you know, mm -hmm. good Lord, they can study a question to death. Mm -hmm. They change their vendor for post-its and it goes <laughs> through a committee review. <laughs> and I think a lesson of the pandemic was that if you generally are better than average, if you bat even 60-40, 65-35 on good decision, bad decision, yeah. you should just make a lot because most of them are not irreversible. One that I report in the book, which now sounds mundane, but at the time was a big deal, which was Chris Nassetta at Hilton in early March of 2020 is looking at bookings that are just falling off a cliff. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. called his general counsel and said, do I need board approval to pull my revolver? Yeah. I've got a billion seven five revolver at the banks. Do I need to vote to do it? GC says, actually, I don't know. This has never come up. Let me check. And he didn't. And he called the CFO and said, I want every dollar that I'm contractually entitled to. Mm -hmm. He was at the front edge of something that so quickly became obviously the right thing to do. And if you were last in line, yeah. you probably got your money, but there was a real risk that you wouldn't. Who knew what the banks were going to look like <laughs> in two weeks? So move fast in those situations. And if you're more right than wrong, it's the right thing to do. One story that really caught my attention had to do with... Jim Hackett, the CEO at Ford. So very early on in the pandemic, he suggested and tried to coordinate a pretty drastic plan. Basically, the idea was, let's shut down the entire economy for four weeks. Let's make sure that the companies, employees, the government share in the burden. But that might be a really interesting and radical way to get the country through a really difficult period. And what caught my attention has to do with, you describe all of these drastic actions inside companies, like the one we just talked about, but there's surprisingly little coordination across businesses. Can you talk a little bit about why we didn't see more of a unified front among American businesses? I was fascinated when I heard that because the plan to me made all the sense in the world. It was basically that you'd shut down everything for 30 days, that there would be some 
tax holidays so that businesses could get some of that money back. There would be some vacation that employees would sacrifice going forward so the productivity gains wouldn't be lost. And that particular situation, it fell apart because no one wanted to bring it up with Donald Trump. It was a political dud. Mm-hmm. It was the kind of collective action that ran into a political buzzsaw. Other times it's competition that does it. And I think the airline story from the pandemic is a pretty good one. Yeah. Early on, the unprecedented level of cooperation. In the early days, they were all in a ton of trouble. And they put a lot of their competitive hackles aside, lobbied effectively together to get tens of billions of dollars of aid from the government. But that coalition had really started to fray by the summer when it was obvious that some like American were in more trouble than stronger ones like Delta and JetBlue. Mm-hmm. And there was this real unease that set in and the calls that they had as the summer went on got less and less productive until ultimately Doug Parker, the CEO of American, which had come into the pandemic in much more debt, much more rickety finances than the rest, was kind of the last man standing. Right. And I think deserves a lot of credit for having gotten his company through, but had very little industry support from his compatriots who realized that they were funding their competitor. Right. One of the things that I was struck by in the book is recreating the amount of peril we were all in at that time, which we have now quickly forgotten, I think. So that moment of peril was so large, and yet it passed so quickly. And I'm curious what the real lasting effects of the pandemic are on the shape of American business. Because one of the nice things you do in the book is you use it as an opportunity to educate the reader about all kinds of things that are going on in finance like for the last 20 years. What do you make now of what that longer lasting impact is? I'm a little disappointed in that I think a lot of the lessons that probably should be learned and internalized, you can already see them being ignored. Coming into the pandemic, there was this sense that the economy was just incredibly strong, Mm -hmm. almost record low unemployment, stock market at an all-time high. But really, it was playing out on these two screens where the veneer of strength and unstoppability, pretty thin. A lot of the tinder was already there, higher levels of debt at households, corporations, at governments, the decline of stable union jobs, these people who were very loosely tethered to the economy, which in the 2010s was an asset. It was the freedom to work for yourself and be a gig worker and a contractor. But there's a cost to that. And this relentless push towards just-in-time efficiency, which is the false promise of technology, which is that it's an unalloyed good, but there's a cost to not having fat baked in, which is there's no fat baked in. There's nothing to burn. Right. You're already starting to see that come back. <laughs> Activists, investors are swarming. The market forces that might have allowed some of that, let's be a little defensive, let's be a little less penny-pinching, have not been learned. I mean, here you said it well. There's a real and understandable desire at every level to just memory hold this entire thing. Right. <laughs> to just put it in this bubble and be like, what on earth was that? And never think about it again. And I think very differently from 2008, there's no real villain here. This wasn't anybody's fault exactly. And it was so devastating and so unpredictable that it's hard to do what you did in 2008 and say, right. Wall Street was doing what for the last five years? <laughs> right. right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So very hard to see what comes out of this crisis that looks like the 2008 response. One of the changes you talk about is that CEOs are now closer to their employees. And you describe it as a good development. And I can see many instances in which this is true. And I'm a little unsure how much is it just the red-hot labor market. Do you think that's just off the moment or that's a longer-term lesson? I don't know. 
There's a stat that I like to point to, which is back in the 1300s. This is a feudal system in Europe, and along comes the Black Death, and kills so many workers that it's the birth of a modern labor market, that they stop being tethered to their lord and said, wait, I have skills. There's no workers on that manor over there. I'll just go sell my labor. And it's a little bit of a crude analogy, but these big seismic events really do reshape the relationship between capital, labor, management, and labor. Just in case you wondered, Liz, why me here and I are smiling in one of our most recent episodes, we talked about that very fact that the labor markets were reorganized in really interesting ways as a result of the Black Death. Mm -hmm. Whenever you see a really big imbalance in the labor market, it creates something that's longer lasting. So this is why, among many other reasons, why we're smiling at you. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I was just so flabbergasted by that stat. And you can actually see it, the Federal Reserve and its infinite wisdom keeps this data and you can see the <laughs> wages of an average worker in Britain between like 1320 and 1360 tripled. I mean, it was wild. My own two cents is that the pendulum was probably swung a little too far in some ways here and not far enough in others, which is to say a phrase that none of us had really heard of or thought much about before 2020, which is essential workers. Who is essential? Who mm -hmm, isn't? Right. Mm -hmm. I would like to think on the back of this that every ER nurse is making twice what they were before. I don't think they are. But you are starting to see labor be ascendant in other ways, whether it's the tug of war over return to work or anecdotal still and kind of a drop in the bucket, but a noticeable spike in unionizing efforts, mm -hmm. some successful, some not. Yeah. So I'm curious, Liz, having finished your first book, Tell us, A, how you got it done, and B, are you going to write another one? For all the aspiring <laughs> authors out there, what was your key during the pandemic to actually keeping a job, but also writing a book? I think a lot of people took a chance during the pandemic. I wrote a book and quit my job. Some people moved. Some people got married. Some people got dogs. It was a catalyzing event for things that maybe you'd been kicking around in your head, but just the trade-offs weren't quite right. The short answer is that I wrote a lot of terrible words. That's how you write a book. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> when you write newspaper articles, I'm sort of a perfectionist, but also there isn't really the time. The first draft should be pretty good, and then you tinker with it. That's not how I wrote a book. You write a lot of terrible, terrible words, <laughs> and then you get rid of most of them. Right. And then the second part of your question was, will I write another book? Yeah. I don't have kids, but I suspect it's a similar thing, which is you go through it and you think, oh my God, why would anyone ever do that again? <laughs> but I would be better at it the second time. Now I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so we are looking forward to the next one. Yes, I need to take a breath. Yeah, take a breath and then get on the next one. We'd look forward to it. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So, Liz, in addition to the book, you've been paying attention to the rise of woke capitalism and the backlash to woke capitalism. What's really interesting to you? Well, if you've been remotely alive in the last year, you've heard a lot about ESG. And what started as kind of like an academic framework for thinking about what companies owe 
their various constituencies has turned into this total boogeyman. First, it was companies wanting to be seen as being good citizens, whatever that meant. And then it became this tug of war over the soul of the boardroom. Mm -hmm. What do companies owe society? Some people will say they got to make a lot of money. Other people will say they have to protect the environment. They have to protect their workers. Somehow that's turned into doing racial equity audits, which may be a very laudable societal goal, but it's provoked this really swift, violent backlash that is tied into these broader fights. Yeah, and just to be clear, people like Larry Fink at BlackRock are now facing withdrawals of funds and suits, and we have state treasurers going after people who allocate capital to the ESG. So it's really become quite a thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We just spent some time talking about my book and the pandemic, and I think the DNA of this actually was sort of firmly laid in 2020. Go back to the early days of the pandemic. There was this huge vacuum of public sector leadership. Mm -hmm. And CEOs, you guys spend enough time with them. You know that they're all living their own profiles and courage movie in their heads at all times. And I think in mostly admirable ways, their employees were scared and really looking for some leadership. And in part driven by ego and a sense of rising to the moment, they ran right into that void. If you remember, it wasn't just the pandemic. You had the murder of George Floyd and this real national reckoning with race. A couple of months later, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. We had this big fight about voting rights. These things that actually on the way in didn't seem all that morally fraught. The pandemic was bad. Racism is bad. Russian aggression is bad. These things are pretty black and white issues. And they were pretty easy softballs for CEOs to get the bat on and do so in ways that accrued to their personal leadership brand equity. But I think they are finding themselves on this slippery slope and thinking, whoa, this is not fun at all. And to your point, me here about Larry Fink at BlackRock really was a leader of this. We have to think about more than the bottom line movement. And he has been hearing the limb getting sawed off behind him for the better part of a year and is scrambling back down the tree. So I think this stuff is just incredibly fraught and probably not ultimately in economically productive ways. I find it helpful to make a distinction between two types of considerations that are not directly tied to tomorrow's profitability. There are a huge number of societal risks, global warming probably the most prominent one, where I am absolutely convinced we will look back and corporate leaders that did not pay attention to it, even though those risks are relevant for their businesses, we will say, you didn't do your job. You thought narrowly about profits today and maybe tomorrow, and you didn't see these really big existential risks that ultimately undermined the performance of the company. On the plus side, if you run a company like Patagonia, I think it's instrumental for that kind of organization, that kind of firm to be pro-environment, to be proactive when it comes to providing social goods, to be really mindful about how they manage their supply chain, because that's in large part the market position that they have and the reason why we pay twice as much for their clothing and their salmon compared to everyone else's prices. So part of the problem is that just like ESG itself, it's a million different things. And we seem to have very different ideas what it is. But at the core, it can be a lot of things where I would say at least you're sort of negligent if you don't pay attention to it as a CEO. I think there's sort of two things here. There's a certain kind of company that gets a brand premium 
because they have certain values. Mm-hmm. To your point, people pay more for Patagonia vests because they feel good about it. Mm-hmm. That's just customer segmentation, and that's marketing positioning. And that it happens to collide with a particular worldview that you like or don't like, that's one thing. The other, though, is what you're talking about, which is long-term stewardship of a company, which is to say there will be a day when there isn't any oil left and Chevron should be preparing for that day. And that's where the incentives of the next quarter or the next year or the average CEO tenure is, what, five to seven years, something like that. The incentives are screwy. And that's really where you need collective action, which is to say the government has to force your hand. But I find it's just a different discussion to say, well, you need the SEC to say you need to disclose your climate risks to investors so they can make a decision and have the market discipline you than to say, well, it's everyone's job to save the world. Those are just two totally different discussions, and they've gotten conflated in the last year or two. I think this whole conversation to me is completely fascinating for two reasons. One is, I think your account, Liz, is right. The pandemic was important, but I think it built on longer standing trends. So ESG predates it, and that wave of people wanting more leadership because of the political vacuum. So your point about the pandemic and the leadership vacuum may be true, but it's a broader issue of people's dissatisfaction with politics Mm -hmm. and the projection of lots of political ambition onto a sector that has more trust and respect than politicians, which is the corporate sector, remarkably. (laughs) And so it's like a huge displacement. I think the second thing is, it is a measure of how politicized a world we live in meaning part of it is about what commerce has done and the way they've portrayed themselves to the world. But part of it is just that you can't be free of politics. It's literally everywhere. We should have all understood when we went down this path. We went down a path of projecting a lot of political goals onto corporations. Well, then guess what? They become politicized. I don't think there's anything surprising about that. Let's take the BlackRock investment boycotts as an example. Texas passed a bill about a year ago the effect of which was to kick a bunch of big banks out of the municipal bond underwriting market. Mm -hmm. They said these guys are committed to not funding fossil fuels, which is absurd because also J.P. Morgan gets yelled at by the Sierra Club every year for being the biggest financer of fossil fuels on the planet. (laughs) But let's say we've decided that J.P. Morgan is too woke and we don't want them bidding to underwrite our sewer bonds. Fine. But the basic laws of supply and demand are that when you kick competitors out of the market, You get a worse product. And there was a fascinating study out of the Chicago Fed and the University of Pennsylvania that found that it had cost Texans somewhere between three and five hundred million dollars in extra interest because the banks that were left Mm -hmm. without the forcing (laughs) mechanism of a two trillion dollar balance sheet charged them more money. Right. Just classic cutting off your nose to spite your face. And on the other side, there is a lot of what I think is rightly characterized as liberal arts college faculty lounge discussions. A lot of hand-wringing about social issues and cultural goals and the best way to pursue them through corporations. And I'm just not sure that corporations are the best way to do those things. There are certain things that just have to be done by the public sector. And to your point, here, it's a shame that they've fallen down on the job, but it doesn't mean that the S&P 500 is going to be any better at it. So, I think everyone's a little wrong, which is why I find this just like a live wire. (laughs) But Liz, if I can push back a little, of course, the three of us can probably agree in five minutes that the best way to fight climate change is to have a carbon tax and we'd be done with it. But the three of us also know there is no chance that this will actually happen. So I find these arguments, oh, let's not push the corporate sector. Let's not think about where there could be 
potential alignment between social goals and narrower corporate goals, I find that critique shallow because it rests on this presumption that the government is going to do it. And we know, in particular in the United States, the government is not going to do it for sure. And so, yes, we live in a second best world. It's not going to be optimal. Say if we had three types of companies, some companies that would try to get an edge either with customers or with employees by being progressive, by subscribing to goals that are broader than a narrow corporate chapter, some companies that are incredibly conservative, and then some companies that try to create an environment that is mostly efficiency-focused, the conversations are not political. If we get that kind of differentiation and some examples of the good things that can happen if some companies choose to try to further social goals, sometimes with success and sometimes complete disasters, just like the governments would do. That sounds okay and roughly consistent with thinking of a market economy where different companies are trying to do different things and maybe some are more successful than others. Let's think about this in airlines. This is a business that is fundamentally dirty. They burn jet fuel and fly huge chunks of metal around. There's no way to do that in a way that doesn't produce a ton of emissions. So there's two options. You can have someone try to develop plant-based jet fuel, uh -huh. but yeah. that's almost certainly going to require some major government funding and some kind of long-dated, long-sighted research priority. You can charge customers a lot more and take their money and then use it to plant trees somewhere or to invest in green energy projects. But my guess would be that that airline would not survive. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's room in this market for consumers to say, I feel good flying on eco air and I'm going to pay more to do that. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a Patagonia of that industry, but I think there are certain industries for which there just isn't. Airline customers are incredibly price sensitive unless their employers are paying. That's the lesson <laughs> on airlines for the last yeah. 50 years. I'm a big fan of the marketplace of ideas and finding niches, but I think there are places where that simply isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs, sure, they talk a lot about their various stakeholders and things they're doing for the world. But this is not a particularly fraught issue for their CEO because their clients and their employees, I'm painting with a broad brush here, fairly homogenous group. Mm -hmm. If you are someone like Disney, think about the constituencies that Bob Chapek had failed to keep happy. They have this huge Hollywood arm, this incredibly liberal talent pool. They have suburban moms who are subscribing to Disney Plus to keep their kids happy. You have these incredibly diverse constituencies, and it's not enough to say, I'm not going to weigh in on this because we're at a place in our politics where not taking a position on something is taking a position on it. So I think this slope has gotten really slippery for particularly diversified companies. I like your view of the world, Felix, in the sense that I love the idea that there's more heterogeneity and we can have organizations choose different strategies. I think that's got to be right. I think the issue is, first, if you choose those strategies, I think the myth of the last couple of years is it's kind of costless. You can kind of say you are for a lot of things and then you should understand that there are going to be people who are not fans of those things. <laughs> and so there's a part of this, which is we should understand that when we make these explicit statements, they come with costs. That doesn't mean mm -hmm, they're bad mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. to do. It just yeah. means that yeah. just don't think that this is all some easy thing that we can all just do. And I think the second piece is just this thing that I really 
worry a lot about, which is this displaced hope on corporations ends up retarding our desire for political mobilization. You said, yeah, we know politics isn't going to work, so we do go this way, which is fair enough and true. And all constituencies should ask their preferred employers or suppliers or whatever to do more. But does it make us, in some sense, expect less of the political process? And Mm -hmm. then it becomes Mm -hmm. a bad equilibrium. That's what I worry about. I love your world, but it does strike me that there's something a little self-defeating about all this. Yeah. Can I ask you a very practical question that I'm curious about? If it's the case that we're all investing with BlackRock, we all have very different political philosophies, why should the asset manager vote for us? Do you think that's a promising way to deal with the tensions? What's your sense? In some sense, I love the idea of people voicing their opinions and voicing their opinions with votes is great. I think the issue is twofold. One is I think they are backtracking because they've realized how complicated it is. Mm -hmm. I think the second issue is the big problems in capital markets are fundamentally governance problems. As a finance person, like this is the way I think about the world, right? Which is we got to have governance and we got to have large investors who govern companies better. I think it's great to have more voice, especially on environmental and social issues. I think it's great for individuals to vote. But it comes again at this cost, which is there's a role for big investors in an economy, which is to actually make sure that managers are doing a good job, which I, as like an individual little shareholder of a mutual fund, am not so good at. And that's what gets sacrificed. But Mihir, why is it that in the consumer space, we think that's exactly what's fabulous about markets? When I buy, I don't know, a little carpet, I'm not doing any deep research about this child labor involved. I'm buying it from Ikea, and I think they're probably going to be careful for lots of reasons. That's totally okay. Because somehow demand gets aggregated. So many consumption choices are not really based on amazing research. Why do we have a different response when the argument goes to the investing side? That's, I mean, I don't know. I'll give you my basic instinct, which is there's this fundamental principal agent governance problem, which is like the biggest problem in capitalism, (laughs) which is like they run companies for me and I don't know if they're doing a good job. And so if you think of that problem as being central, then the only solution to it is collective action. And that's largely done through investors. You should look at the governance proposals that have come up and they get voted in proxies in the last couple of years. They are dominated by E and S. Yeah. And they have become where proxies are going, and which is fundamentally by governance. And you might say, well, that's good because no. you got to do this from an E perspective and got to do this from an S perspective. And the answer is, yeah, that is great. But there are trade-offs. There's like very little G. And that's the thing that finance really cares about is the G piece. And we're losing it a little bit. Yeah. What do you think, Liz? I actually have a slightly different view of the letters, I think, which is the E, we all kind of know what we're talking about. We can argue about who should be doing it and are they doing enough. But Mm -hmm, more or mm -hmm. less, we're talking about carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. I think the G has actually, in large part, kind of been solved, which is... You know, you go back to the 70s and 80s and a lot of those Delaware cases that were litigating these just unbelievably crony boards that were the CEO's brother-in-law and his college roommate. And we have real standards both at the corporate law level and the listing level about independence. Maybe they don't always do a good job, but staggered boards are not really a thing anymore, aside from Silicon Valley, dual class. I think that there's a lot more collective action and the fact that shareholders, activists with very tiny stakes can get major changes done actually makes me think the G is less of a problem. 
I think the S is incredibly problematic because it means really different things to different people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For some people, it means higher wages and taking better care of your employees. For some people, it means blacklisting woke Wall Street. Mm. It is such a squishy concept. Okay, recommendations. Liz, what do you got? There's a terrific podcast called Slow Burn that mm. came out a couple of years ago. And its first season is about Watergate. It later did one on Bill Clinton. Yeah. But it takes this fascinating view, which is we tend to look at things in retrospect and not realize the sort of frog boiling aspect of living through mm-hmm. an era. And it's incredibly good. And it made me rethink what it's like to live through like an epical moment and not really know it. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of that. It's Leon Nafok. That's a Slate podcast, and it's excellent. I think I listened to the Bill Clinton and the Watergate ones, and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a great pick. Felix, what do you have? Since we just talked about climate change, I would like to recommend a website that allows you to predict the influence that climate change will have on the place where you live. Ooh. It's a website called Risk Factor, put together by a nonprofit It's really amazing in the sense that there's so much data, there's so much insight that we now can bring to a five-year prediction, a 10-year prediction. So the big risks are obviously heat, wind, water, wildfires, and so on. And there's two things that I really love about it. You can literally go down to the place you rent or the place you own. You specify what type of roof you had. They give you a probability distribution of the wind speed that you will see, and then a cost estimate of how much it's going to cost to repair your roof. (laughs) So it literally goes down the rabbit hole where you can say, well, you know, this is going to be a big thing. This is not a big thing. That is interesting. If you hear the big risk assessments, yeah, so what am I going to do with that? I know there's going to be climate change. Right. But this really breaks it down in a way that is both, I think, amenable to action that you think about, oh, you know, maybe if I had a different type of roof, that might be a good idea. But also just to give you a sense, what's the financial exposure that I will have at some point in time? It's great to make that stuff tangible. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. What do you have for us, Mihir? Well, this is triggered a little bit by our discussion of the Black Death and other things, but I have recently (laughs) finished this book by Oded Galore that's called The Journey of Humanity, Origins of Wealth and Inequality. So this is one of those big books. Mm. Let's talk about the whole journey of humanity. And he has just a very simple theory about why countries have different levels of per capita income, why they grew up at different times in different ways, And he just tells it in the most elegant way. Mm -hmm. One of the upshots of the book is so much of what we see today of inequalities that we observe across countries is to do just with very subtle timing differences and accidents of geography and Mm. things that really are quite remarkable when you think about what their effects are today. Is it a little like guns, germs, and steel in its outlook? I was just going to ask that because haven't we done like a total rethinking of Jared Diamond's book and now it's problematic in certain ways. It doesn't have any of the kind of baggage I think that the Jared Diamond stuff has. And so it made me think hard about why we get so obsessed about inequality when it could be the reflection of very small differences. Uh And it's really great. It's interesting. Fascinating. And this is it for today. Thank you everyone for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.
Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.